0: Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm so grateful for the Lord's presence here. And that makes our being here well worthwhile. This morning, I'm going to talk about Psalm 8. And I'm going to read this from the ESV. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? My first memory of Psalm 8 is from my childhood. I remember hearing Cliff Barrows, the Billy Graham Association, read this psalm on the Billy Graham Hour of Decision in his sonorous voice. In fact, it was my first introduction to the psalms. And At that tender age, I had no idea that God would somehow, someday, turn this book into one of the passions of my life. In Psalm 8, David breaks forth in this incredibly beautiful hymn of praise, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. One of the first things we ought to notice as we read this psalm is that verse 1 re- is a refrain. It's repeated in verse 9. That The fact that this is a, re- is a refrain begins and ends the psalm means something more than just a refrain. These two, ber- these two verses sometimes are called the bookends of the psalm. And they frame the whole psalm. That means that everything in between should be read in relation to these psalms, to, to, to these bookends. Now, this morning I want to help you understand what this means. And I'm going to look at two views of Psalm 8. And I hope that you can follow me and that you will see how I am trying to open up the psalm in the light of verse 1 and verse 9. The first views I've already suggested is that everything in Psalm 8 must be read in relation to the bookends. And this is demonstrated by one little word the word "how," how majestic! We use it as, a, as it is used here to express surprise and excitement and wonder. How majestic! King James says, "How excellent!" Now, let's admit that one little word can cannot open up the meaning of God's person. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of the U.K., suggests this is the reason it is left as a note of exclamation. How majestic. When we try to express God's glory, God's person, God's character in words, we just can't quite fit it into human language. And sometimes we just simply end up using an exclamation to say something about God. I think we do this with the word, with the verb love. If, If you say to your spouse, I love you, sometimes you don't feel like you need to try to break that verb down into its component parts, and that's enough. Some other times, we feel like we need to express it in words and break it down into its component parts and we look for the best vocabulary that we can find and we'll say something like you're lovely, awesome tremendous, amazing incredible and then we realize that we have opened the door to that treasury of thought and emotion that we all experience that is love we still haven't defined love but we have described it, not defined it. In fact, I I would say the final definition of love is made in terms of actions, not words. We've used an exclamatory word like David did, how majestic is your name? One summer, when we were in England, we visited the Tower of London. Some of you have probably been there. A friend came to see us, so we went to the Tower of London. And we stood in a long line to look at the crown jewels, exquisite jewels of England's queens and kings. When we got to the place where the jewels were securely displayed under glass, We stepped onto a moving walkway that just moved us through the exhibit. And in a few seconds, our eyes had seen some of the most precious jewels in all the world. Now, if we had been a diamond cutter or a goldsmith, we wouldn't have had time, as we passed those jewels, we wouldn't have had time to describe the intricate skill and expertise required to produce those jewels as we went by them, rather we just use an exclamatory word. How beautiful, how awesome. And that's sometimes how the way we praise God. How is the way we praise God? That's sometimes how the praise of God comes out. How majestic is your name in all the earth? David doesn't try to break down God's character into its component parts. And describe them, although in the psalm he does some of that, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about that. The Psalms do this in other instances and in other ways. But the psalmist just says, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Later David does offer a description. Not a definition, but he talks about God's creating power. when he begins to expo- uh, and he begins this ex- exclamation, "How majestic is your name." Now this is demonstrated in two little words. When we look at the Psalms, we have to be careful that we don't just look for big things. We look for little things as well. The first demonstration of this exclamation is in this one little word, how. How occurs three times in the psalm. Verse 1, how majestic. Verse 9, how majestic. And then it also occurs in verse 4. There it's translated not how, but what. But it's the same word in Hebrew. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or how is it that you are mindful of man? So we see the beautiful balance in the psalm. In the bookends 1 and 9, the word calls attention to the nature of God. In the middle occurrence, in verse 4, this word how calls attention to the nature of man. So you see how the psalmist has broken down his ideas and he wants us to look at who God is and he wants us to look at who humankind is. This is how David says it. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man or how is it that man... Is such that you are so mindful of him. It's the same word that occurs in 1 and 9. The Son of Man, that you care for him. Now, this is what throws the psalmist into wonderment at how beautiful, when God looks at the heavens he made and how beautiful they are, when he looks at the universe he created how intricate and absolutely lovely it is, why should God bother with us human beings? God's a nature lover. He created it. He pronounced it very good. And he could entertain himself for eternity by just sitting back and admiring the universe he made. Why should God keep us in mind, us rabble-raising, sin-loving human beings? But he cares for us. That's the wonder that the psalmist wants to put before us. Now, David had in mind Genesis 1, and he recognized that God had created man a little lower than God. Now, um, ESV says heavenly beings. Uh, King, King James says angels. He made him a little lower than the angels. Uh, the word in the Hebrew text, however, is he made man a little lower than God. And how the, tra- the versions translate the word is the question. He made Man a little lower than God. He was in the image of God, but he was not God. Now, as I've said, this word can be translated as angels or God. And I think that the best translation, what the psalmist was really saying, is he made man a little lower than God. That puts him way up there, it puts him in second place. The creator made us a little lower than God. Now, what David was thinking about is the, the phrase in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. Now, that is a very important uh, significance. After Genesis 9... The phrase image of God doesn't even occur in the Old Testament. We don't find it anywhere. But this expression here, he made man a little lower than God, is the closest phrasing we have in the Old Testament to the the phrase of Genesis 1, the image of God. Now, he also did something else. the creator made man a little lower than God. And what David was thinking about, as I've said, was the, the image of God. And God's mandate that we human beings rule over the earth and subdue it. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, God deputized us human beings to care for this earth and rule over it. That's how highly esteemed we human beings are in God's eyes. He gave us the beautiful world he created to take care of. Can you imagine putting humanity in charge of this incredible world to keep it and subdue it and rule over it? What a task. God could have turned us loose to slither across the ground like some of the animals, or nest in the treetops like the birds, or burrow a home for ourselves in the ground, but he gave us intelligence and dominance over the world. Now, that's part of the wonder. It's only part. But the greater part of the wonder is that God's main focus is not the physical world he made. He said it was good, Genesis one thirty-one. He's concerned about it. He admires the snow-capped Himalayas, the green carpet English countryside, the sky-blue Caribbean, the corn-fested fields, of Illinois and Indiana. This psalm presents the wonder of nature, but that's not God's main concern. Rather, his main concern is us human beings. What is man that you are mindful of him? Now, what does it mean that God is mindful of us? The psalms call us God's beloved and many other gracious titles Isaiah says he loves us even more than a mother loves her child can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb and Isaiah admits even these may forget but I will not forget you behold I have engraved you on the palms of my hands we sang this this morning Now, if this is not a wonder, what is? If God is looking for beauty and mystery, he can find plenty of it in the universe he created, even enough to keep him busy for eternity. But that's not his preoccupation. He is preoccupied with us human beings, with us human creatures. And that's what amazes David. What is man? that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. Now, before we go too far and conclude, conclude wrongly that the human creation is the main focus of Psalm 8, we need to recognize that David shines the spotlight on humanity so that he can turn it on God. It's the character of God has the whole universe that he could stay busy with, but he is mindful of us and he cares for us. The original text says he remembers us and visits us. So this is the God of love that we see in the New Testament. And that's the second way I want to show you that uh, the meaning of psalm 8 is demonstrated we get to the second view of psalm the second uh, dimension of psalm 8 and we look at the five times the word all is used in the psalm now we're looking for little things because those little things turn out to be big things when we interpret the psalms we see this word first in verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's glory is portrayed everywhere in all places. And, of course, this word occurs again in the refrain in verse 9 because that's just a repetition of verse 1. So David opened and closed this, his psalm with this, ex, this uh, exclamation of praise, and God's glory is known in all the earth. The psalm makes this declaration at the beginning and at the end, which means that the whole system, the whole psalm, is framed by this little word of praise. God's name is majestic in the whole universe. Once we see that opening and closing declaration, everything else in the psalm has to be viewed in that frame of reference, the point I've made earlier. That's the reason the psalmist can say, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. God created this world with an inherent leaning toward the creator. That is, when we look at God's creation, we should see God. Read Romans 1. The psalmist sprinkles the word all three times again in the description of God's deputizing humankind to to rule over the creation. So it actually occurs five times. This word all occurs five times in the psalm. One one of those five times is is, uh, implied. You made him a little lower, uh, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything, that's the word all, you put everything all, under his feet. And then he begins his list. All flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all the sw- swims, the paths of the seas. David wants us to see that God's name is majestic in all the earth. So he keeps repeating this idea that man's rule is over all the earth the totality of it this shows how highly esteemed we are in god's eyes he deputized us to keep this absolutely beautiful incredibly complex and mysterious universe we don't we don't put someone we don't care for in that position of responsibility The founder and CEO of the company on retirement doesn't put the person he least admires and cares for in his company as the new CEO of the company. David does not even use the word love in this psalm, but it's it's implied throughout the psalm. This is how much God loves us. He created us in his own image and from that point on, he was, he was tied to us by his own decision. So the fact that God deputized man to keep his world shows how much he loves us, how much he cares. Now, the second view of the psalm that I want to talk about is how the psalm is used in the New Testament. When our Lord was entering Jerusalem prior to his passion and death, the chanting of praise by the children brought the criticism of the priests and the scribes, and they spoke indignantly of Jesus. And you remember what Jesus did. He quoted Psalm 8, 2. The chanting of praise by the children brought the criticism of the scribes and priests. But Jesus said, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. God doesn't have to have the eloquence of the rhetoricians. He admires beautiful language, I believe that. But the babbling of infants in praise also does the job just fine. He understands their language. And when they talk or make their babbling sounds, they get our attention. And as parents, we understand their language better than anyone else. We have a little three-year-old grandson. And when he was beginning to talk, I would listen as carefully as I could and then what I would have to say, Becky what did he say? And she generally knew what he said or at least she knew what he meant. And our Heavenly Father understands when we are telling him in our broken and infantile language that we are hungry. That something has gone wrong in our physical body. That we need to be closer to him He understands our language. It may be babbling words, but he understands it. The second use of Psalm 8 in the New Testament is in the epistle to the Hebrews. And and here, the writer to the Hebrews uses Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Quite a bit of the psalm. And he applies it to Christ's death and resurrection. The psalm refers to humanity as man and son of man. Now, if you look at these two terms in the Old Testament, son of man generally in the Old Testament means just humankind, humanity. It's just a a synonym for man. But when the writer to the Hebrews heard this psalm, man and son of man son of man stuck out to him as having more meaning than just human being Jesus referred to himself as son of man and the writer of the Hebrews is quite aware of that and understands this as a messianic title and he applies it to Christ he heard in the psalm that David was talking about Someone else, bigger than man. You made him a little lower than God. The writer of the Hebrews hears a prophecy of Christ's incarnation in human flesh and his humiliation. God became man and dwelt among us and went to the cross for our salvation. We know this so well from John's Gospel and from the Synoptic Gospels and from Paul's writings. When when the writer to the Hebrews read, you crowned him with glory and honor, he heard a, prophesy, a prophecy of Christ's resurrection and ascension. And then Psalm 8 says, you put everything under his feet. That is, God has subjected the whole world to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Now, in this we see our own failure to subdue the world as we were mandated to do. So God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we had not done and what, I would say, we could never do. But we were... Mandated to do it, and we're still trying, as God's church and as God's people, to subdue this world to ourselves. It's not just a spiritual thing. I think this subjection of the world to to our humankind to humankind is also increases in the sciences. We have done an amazing job in those fields, I think, but uh, we're still not there yet. This statement, you put everything under his feet, shook the writer to the Hebrews into reality because he knew that everything is not yet in subjection to Christ. We look around and it's a troubled world. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present time, we do not see everything subject to Jesus Christ. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than God, not now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I think that in this for a, this clause, But we see Jesus. I think that is a clause that incorporates the mission of the church. It's seeing Jesus and recognizing that that changes our whole perspective. That is to say, there is a hiatus between God's making everything subject to Christ and its becoming the great reality of the universe. We don't yet see everything subject to him, the writer of the Hebrews says, but we see Jesus. Mankind has done a lot to rule over creation and bring the world under subjection to his will, but the heart of man is still unruly and rebellious. If anything that has escaped our attention and our uh, object, our object, it's our own hearts. Those are the most rebellious thing that we deal with in our lives. But one day, that day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's precisely what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about. Now, at this very moment, our bodies are subject to decay, and many people are declining in health, but we see Jesus. Now, at this present moment, the Ukraine war is raging strongly. It's a warring world, but we see Jesus. Here and now, we see it in the sanctuary, People are dying from gunshots in Chicago and Los Angeles and New York. And I noticed this morning the four people were shot in a funeral procession in Oak Park yesterday. And it's going on in places we wouldn't even have imagined. But we see Jesus. In this present hour of history, many people in our country and the world are suffering from hunger and unemployment and homelessness and drug abuse, but we see Jesus. As we contemplate this truth from Psalm 8, gathered in this hall and waiting for God's guidance to a new leader and a new shepherd for this congregation, and perhaps disappointed by the delay and the waiting, we see Jesus. We know of homes that are broken and lives that are shattered, but we see Jesus. On the cross, God, through Christ, subdued the powers of evil and secured the redemption of this world that has been groaning for redemption. Again, Paul's epistle to the Romans. And redemption of the world, our redemption, became a reality in redemptive history on the cross we might say there it was theoretical. That is, it was not carried out in the practical issues of the world that we face and understand. But when our Savior comes again, it will become a reality in redemptive history because we see Jesus. May God give us clear vision to see Jesus and expect the day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, God, clear our vision so that we can see Jesus clearly. We can recognize his love, his power, his grace. The fact that he has already subdued the world to himself. And we're just waiting for the final phase of it all. When our Savior comes again. And receives us to himself. And we reign with him in glory. In his name we pray. Amen.